give the people what they want from People's Dispatch and Globetrotter. I'm Prashant from People's Dispatch. I'm Zoe from People's Dispatch. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter, coming to you live every Friday from the People's Dispatch Facebook page and later as a podcast. We shall overcome. We shall overcome. Okay, so here we are. Um, just to make sure that we're all set, it's the 12th of March today in 2021. Uh, it's a good day to be alive, as every day is a good day to be alive. Um, it's the one-year anniversary, almost, uh, well, a year ahead, a year and a day, of the declaration of the COVID-19 pandemic as a pandemic by the World Health Organization. You're listening to Give the People What They Want, uh, your weekly, every Friday, uh, which is weekly, um, show on Global News in half an hour with Zoe, and with Prashant from People's Dispatch, one of the top movement storytellers at peoplesdispatch.com. .org. Sorry, it's one of those things. Uh, .org, obviously .org, peoplesdispatch.org. And I'm Vijay from Globetrotter, um, back with you. Um, happy to be here. I wanted to start, guys, with... Um, mention that today is the day when uh, the Biden administration is going to um, hold a meeting of the Quad, the Quad being the quadrilater quadrilateral security dialogue with the governments of Japan, Australia and India. Um, this is quite significant because it's the first innings, first opening of the Biden administration. They say they are not going to emphasize China. That's what they say. Although I must say that's not really um, uh, credible because China will be um, will be at the at the heart of this. Um, you know, it's impossible for them not to put China at the center. And just before this meeting, the U.S. military essentially said that as part of their Pacific Defense Initiative, uh, they're going to be spending. They've asked for a doubling of the Pacific Defense Initiative budget to $5 billion. It's a considerable amount of money. They're going to militarize Guam even further. Um, and the head of the Indo-Pacific Command went before Congress, uh, Mr. Davidson, and made the claim that, well, uh, of all things, uh, he said that they are not just preparing a military buildup on China to threaten China, but Admiral Davidson said uh, they are preparing for a war. Uh, I think people need to take this quite seriously. I, I was surprised to see how little coverage there is on uh, Davidson's remark when he said that they are in fact preparing for a war. And he said that there are many threats to the United States, but China is the only credible threat. That's the language that Davidson used. And Davidson also said that because it's credible, it's likely that um, the United States might need to go to war with China before 2050. Um, he put a date to it, before 2050. Where at 2021? Uh, some people might say, well, that's a long way to go. But uh, he didn't say at 2050. He said before 2050. And these are two nuclear powers, one of them threatening war against the other. Uh, the Chinese, for their part, have had a very sober reaction China did not say that the Quad meeting to be held today, 12th of March, should not be held. China said continue, hold it, that's fine, but um, 
meetings like this multilateral meetings should not be held in order to persecute one country um, by the way guys i just want to um just want to put on record that when the chinese said this as a principled statement in other words it's okay to have a block of countries meet you know even on a regular basis the quad for instance india australia japan uh, you know the united states can meet on a regular basis but it should not be have as its main agenda the prosecution of hostilities against a country as you know as i said this is a specific claim but they made a principled objection this applies to the lima group um, which has been meeting for the last several years uh, led by the canadians um, by countries in latin america like colombia for instance at the heart of this um, their objective of course to prosecute a hostile environment for the government of venezuela to overthrow in fact the government in venezuela so i think what the chinese said about the quad meeting on the 12th of march a very high level meeting it's a head of government's meeting um that the quad it can meet but they shouldn't have as their objective regime change in china and that of course applies to the lima group but i was thinking about this this applies in a way to nato as well um you know uh, what is the objective of nato nowadays is it a defensive agreement against whom they're talking about a middle east nato now a pacific nato an asian nato um is this really the direction one should go in and and i'm i'm going to say that next week at people's dispatch and globe trotter um i'll be writing a piece on the quad uh, after this meeting and have been spending some time reading us government documents this week I got to say it's pretty chilling you know it's not uh, comforting I was also happy to listen to the speech given by uh, president Lula of Brazil the former president of Brazil who is acquitted of all charges happy to hear his speech where he basically said people in Brazil shouldn't be taking their orders from the United States it was a very strong speech he talked about the US dollar he also said you know we need to develop our own understanding of where we live in the world seems to me this is very much what the chinese said in their statement with regard to the quad zoe you followed what's been happening in brazil it's quite exhilarating i suppose for the people there to have um, lula out it's in a way what some people are saying is the pink tide versus the toxic sludge what's happening in brazil zoe Well, it's a very good question, Vijay, and I think it's important to take an, a moment because, you know, in Brazil, of course, we have this amazing news about uh Lula being acquitted uh cleared of all charges, of all convictions more properly. Um in the in it, the midst of a very, very challenging moment for Brazil. So we've been talking about on the show a lot. Brazil has continues to break record numbers of confirmed cases of COVID. of deaths. Um and so in the midst of this kind of deepening crisis there is this incredible beacon of hope and of inspiration which is the fact that on Monday uh March 8th the Supreme Court minister Edson Fachin he essentially cleared Lula of all convictions that were made by the court in Curitiba um in the Operation Car Wash case. And this is not necessarily for the reasons that we you know no in uh, of course of the judge being extremely partial meeting with the prosecution team this was actually on the fact that uh it involved they he ruled that this 
the court in Curitiba did not have the competency because to rule in this case because it did not involve Petrobras. So it's kind of a technical um, decision, and now Lula will be retried in Brasilia. But of course, it's a tremendous victory in a case that has shook Brazil for the past couple of years since, you know, of course, since the case started, but of course has intensified um, over the past five years, you know, with the, the coup against Dilma, with the continued attempts to just wipe out the Workers' Party through slander, through this, you know, concocted case by the right wing. I mean, we had a really great conversation with Daniel Giovanas, who is a reporter from Brasil de Fato. He actually was covering uh, the Lava Jato case, the Operation Car Wash case, when it was happening in 2016-2017 in Curitiba. He was following all of these rulings by Sergio Moro, following the prosecution of Operation Car Wash, which is led by Delta Dallagnol. And he was talking about, you know, they've always known that this has been a politically motivated case. Um, you know, we have Delta Dallagnol, he does a PowerPoint presentation and he just puts Lula's name in the center of this PowerPoint and then puts arrows towards him with all of the corruption cases that are taking place in Brazil. I mean, it's ridiculous. This was before Lula had even been officially charged with anything. There's just been a constant media war against Lula. There's been, you know, the mainstream media partnership with the judiciary has been key in this. I mean, there's so many elements to unpack here, but I think finally this Monday, a first kind of sane ruling in the case. A first ruling that takes a look at the evidence, takes a look at what's really happening and says, okay, actually, these convictions were not correct. Um, they can't be uh, validated. And so there's going to be a new hearing. Uh, a key takeaway from this ruling is that Lula now has his political rights back. And what does this mean? In the 2018 elections, you know, Lula was supposed to be a candidate. Uh, he, in April 2018, um, he was denied his appeal for habeas corpus, so he was arrested and he spent the next 580 days in prison. There were multiple, multiple attempts to register him as a candidate. You know, the Landless World Workers Movement did this impressive, you know, tens of thousand pe person march called the Free Lula March to demand that Lula's political rights be respected. There was a hunger strike which saw militants from the MST, from trade unions, go on a hunger strike to demand that he be allowed to be a candidate. But of course, as we know, one of the main goals of having him prisoner was to deny him of this political right. But now with this ruling, and of course he did not contest in elections, which ultimately elected Bolsonaro. Um, with this ruling, he'll be given his political rights. Um, there's a lot of talk that he's going to be the presidential candidate in 2022. He has not confirmed this publicly yet, but I think it really signs a positive positive turn in Brazil and hopefully a return to democracy, a return to a people-centered policies and at a really crucial time right now. I mean, a crucial time because the COVID pandemic is, you know, continuing to escalate in Brazil. And I, I was interested to see, Zoe, that right after Lula's speech, Bolsonaro put a mask on, um, you know, well, you know, it's a, it's a fig leaf, but I suppose a fig leaf is better than no fig leaf. Meanwhile, of course, in South Africa, another country, another part of the BRICS block, um, we see the um, escalation of of uh, of the COVID pandemic, and then you know, an old friend is back in South Africa. The dispute between the students and the government over fees 
this was a big debate uh, several years ago the fees must fall movement in south africa back again seems to be police firing rubber bullets tear gas in middle of a pandemic a bystander killed prashant people's dispatch has been following this um south africa shouldn't they be focusing on the pandemic there we are police firing rubber bullets what's happening absolutely vijay in fact uh, our friends at new frame have done couple of good really good stories on this and followed this up and uh, the fundamental issue like you pointed out is again something that's actually common throughout the world the fact that at this time of crisis governments have continued the broad framework of neoliberal policies they have continued to sort of you know what do you call not allow not provide any relief at all and a classic example is what's happening right now because at the university which borderland what we're seeing is that nearly 8000 students were not allowed to register because of the historic historical debt they owed to the institution and at a time when for instance uh, you know students have even those who are working have students yeah, who are working have very little avenue to employment you know you know sources of revenue have come down there's all round uh, the poverty has increased at that point of time you have a university you have an entire government actually privileging the collection of you know debt or be privileging debt as the key factor when it comes to admissions and just the idea that 8000 students in one university alone are not allowed to register shows you the extent of the problem and this is just one part of it the university was also considering increasing fees at th- this point of time again it shows the sheer insensitivity of you know the system so when you instead of talking about debt relief which is what students not only in south africa but across the world have been demanding for instance we saw very similar demands in the united states we have seen similar demands across europe but instead of uh, all this we have say governments and educational institutions acting primarily as uh, say agents of the status quo pretending as though nothing has changed in the last one year and it's bad enough that student debt is an issue even in a non pandemic year the fact that you know students have to spend their time studying while thinking about how much they're going to owe is itself an insult it is a blow that we are it's an attack on the future it's not even it's not just an attack on the present it's an attack on the future as well but that this happens in the year of a pandemic is all the more atrocious and we see the students of course starting to protest from march 5th onwards and on march 10th again it is uh, even the police minister called it crazy but the fact is that a man in his 30s who was coming out of after doctor's appointment was shot and killed and here we had students protesting peacefully you know trying to raise their voices trying to sort of uh convey to the government they were they were not going to be they were not willing to accept what the university has done and we have a person an innocent person uh, shot dead just because uh the police basically went wild so to speak for lack of better word and again this also is very clear uh, is a very clear indication because we have seen exactly in south africa the same kind of attitude of the police towards all kinds of popular struggles and this is something that the national union of metal workers of south africa also really highlighted that this is the kind of police response that happens when miners protest when uh, workers at uh, say arsenal metal protest workers across the country protest this is what happens when saftu did a strike last month this was what happened as well their organizers were dragged in so we see also a very insensitive a very brutal police system which sort of almost has made violence a common practice in responding to those who are asking for their rights 
and the students are continuing their protest of course they are calling for what is called a higher education debt bailout and they're demanding that the university actually admit everybody and then pressurize the state for that not only that university but universities across the country students movements across the country pressurize the government for a higher education debt bailout and i think the important thing across the world is to realize that uh, nowhere in the world is this impossible for the you know giving a student debt bailout or uh, you know wiping out student debt we've seen candidates in the across the world contest on these platforms even the numbers are clear that financially it is possible it's just the lack of political will and the refusal of uh, say authorities across the world to leave that paradigm of seeing education as a commodity and so i think these protests are definitely going to continue in south africa and across the world with very similar demands you know in fact um, last night the students at jawaharlal nehru university in new delhi kept the central library open because what they're also protesting you know fees is a very important issue prashant but also just the fact that they've been shut out from education last week unicef the un um, agency for children reported that 168 million children around the world haven't been to school um, they say that 214 million children have lost three quarters of their school time last year uh, by the way the bulk of these uh, I'm, i'm looking at the report the bulk of these are in latin america and the caribbean um, in parts of asia and so on it's it's where where you would expect Uh, is a pressing need to think about not just the digital divide but the electricity divide um you know places where there's insufficient electricity uh, how are you going to have digital education you know if people can't afford to eat how are they going to buy a computer um it's a much more it's a malevolent thing so when these students at JNU in Delhi said open the central library we want to come and study what they mean is we don't have access to computers to study at home and you're raising the fees i mean uh, this is a very serious issue again uh, well reported i i must say uh, by as you said new frame in south africa newframe.com uh, highly recommended of course you know is a headache whenever we talk about colombia it's a headache something happens in my head when i think about how many people keep seeming to get killed there and then of course the government makes some outlandish statements i i was shocked to read that piece at the people's dispatch site uh, what you know a, a senior government official what did he call children zoe i mean it's ridiculous we're talking about children children trying to get to school 168 million children not being in school last year and what does the government in colombia call children war machines so it's outrageous right what's happening i mean there? yeah i think every time we talk about colombia it's a sort of a painful topic because it seems that the genocide of the people of colombia just continues unabated and there is almost no international attention on this um and i think that's why we keep bringing it up because it's just such a pressing topic the atrocities that are being committed are so great that it's it's just we can't we can't ignore it um this week essentially reports surfaced um you know there's an ongoing armed conflict in colombia just for people to know uh you know several large guerrilla groups have demobilized but there's an ongoing armed conflict uh the colombian army is one of the biggest in latin america it regularly um carries out military operations um so on march 2nd it carried out a military operation 
a bombing of what it called a FARC dissident camp. So as we know, the FARC demobilized in 2016. But of course, you know, the government has all but respected the agreement. So several splinter groups from the main demobilized group have, you know, rearmed, engaged in combat. There's a whole, that's a whole nother kind of uh, story to go down. But essentially, the government had identified one of the camps of these FARC dissident groups um, and bombed it on March 2nd. Uh, and basically, what has come out in recent days through media reports, independent media reports from the ground, uh, journalist Honman Mordis, was that at this camp, there were minors, there were a lot of minors present. So when we're talking about, you know, lack of opportunities for children, lack of opportunities for youth, Colombia is, of course, one of the most unequal countries in the region. Um, and, you know, youth are some of the people who are suffering most from this with, without access to education, without access to proper resources. A lot of youth in Colombia, of course, find themselves either recruited to the national army because they're actually it's obligatory. You have to join the national army or pay a fine. And a lot of uh, young people actually find themselves in illegal armed groups. And what, you know, for whatever reason, this happens through sometimes forced recruitment and a slew of other reasons. So there were minors in this camp that was bombed. And essentially, the Minister of Defense has yet to acknowledge this. Um, he's yet to acknowledge that minors were killed in this bombing. A, and Homan Moris, this journalist who was on the ground, uh, essentially uncovered that as many as 14 minors may have been killed in this bombing. And what's, you know, upsetting is that this is not the first time that the Colombian army has an authorized military operation, authorized from the Minister of Defense, has killed minors in a bombing. And then, of course, denied it. They both denied it and also said that children are trained to be war machines in these camps and that once they commit a crime, they cease to be children and they become criminals. And so I think that's really important to underline is that the government does not want to take any responsibility for the structural issues which bring children to have no other choice or be forced to be drawn into this armed conflict, which has been going on in Colombia for 60 years. It takes no measures to protect the lives of these vulnerable children. And then it violates international humanitarian law. And several lawyers have pointed out that this bombing was not necessary. The point of a war is to not annihilate your enemy. The point of the war is to pacify a situation and to have a, a, a solution to the conflict. But the Colombian army would prefer to kill all of the adversaries. And, this, and it doesn't matter if they're children. It doesn't matter what state of vulnerability they're in. They have no interest in this. And so I think it's just another very upsetting violation of human rights. Of course, you know, there have been a couple of social leaders that have been killed this week. It just continues. Um, and of course, you know, they continue their embarrassing attack on Venezuela for human rights violations, they say, whereas the own their government just continues to massacre children. So, I mean, this this contradiction, this atrocity just continues. We have to keep highlighting this. Also want to mention at the end of the month, Colombian movements and organizations are organizing a people's tribunal to try the Colombian state for these crimes of genocide, for these you know crimes against humanity. So I think it's something to pay attention to. Movements are not just standing by, they're denouncing the government and they're going to all instances possible to call out the government for their illegal actions. 
You're with us at Give the People What They Want. Uh, that was uh, Zoe Alexander from People's Dispatch talking about Colombia. Um, you know, we've had some emphasis here, Prashant, on children. Uh, we talked about the UNICEF report, 168 million children out of school. Zoe has emphasized the murder of these children in Colombia. Uh, the, the indecency of the Colombian government to call children war machines. Of course, in Israel, Prashant, and in the occupied Palestinian territories, children have been considered to be war machines for a very long time. And they've, the indelicacy of the Israeli government, they've used words worse than that, phrases worse than that. I follow Bet Salem on uh, Twitter and so on, and I have to put myself through some of the videos that they post. These videos recently from Masafer Yata in the occupied West Bank of these children being arrested have been, they're grotesque vid videos. Prashant, I wonder if you could walk us a little bit um, through what the Israeli state has been doing to Palestinian children. Absolutely, Vijay, in the sense that I think one of the issues, especially since we talked over the last two, three issues, is the fact that uh, many of the incidents we talk about are actually reflective of some very strong structural crimes that we are seeing that these are none of these are isolated incidents, but actually reflective of, you know, an entire system, a very entrenched system, so to speak. And I think the incident you talked about is yet another example of that, because you have five children between the ages of eight and 13 who were picking up fruits or plants or whatever. Settlers who were from a nearby illegal outpost, which itself is a crime, according to most countries in the world, according to all laws that exist come and scare these children, then call the security forces. The security forces come and detain these children. And, you know, they're threatened and then they're released. And the two oldest children who are 12 and 13 from that group are asked to come back next week for further questioning. And apparently the logic behind this is that according to Israeli law, if you're above, if you're 12 or above, you can face this kind of legal action. Now, this is just children being children. And this has been so normalized, which I think is the important thing that we need to keep realizing here, that this is not a one-off incident. This is not as you know, liberals often are happy to say a case of bad apples, so to speak, which is the argument always thrown about, okay, okay, this is some wild uh, people doing some mistakes, but this is actually structure, structural. And a very good example is the fact that every year over 500 children are prosecuted or they face legal action by Israeli authorities. There are at least 140 children who are currently in uh, Palestinian children who are in Israeli jails right now. And I think this is, uh, you know, like I said, the key aspect of this whole fact is the uh, of this incident is the fact that this is so much centered around the settler colonial Israeli state, the illegal settlements, the illegal outposts. This is where so much of the violence takes place, whether you look at villages being demolished, whether you look at people being threatened, whether you look at children being threatened or detained these ways. And this is a clear case of apartheid, as many, many organizations have pointed out. And yet you have, for instance, the United States pretending as though Israel is a beacon of democracy. You know, you have almost this nauseating uh, discourse or dialogue around it, which again and again ignores the realities on the ground that it's the men, women and children of Palestine who every single day are facing these kind of atrocities. And even the risk of it, they almost there, some, some sort of desensitization happening because 
you know, there's this avalanche of uh, regular news every day. So I think for people's movements across the world, it's so essential to have uh, this issue very much front and center because solidarity with Palestine is, I think, it is probably one of the most important movements right now because it's a, it's a global struggle that is, I mean, there is no struggle for democracy, for justice, for any kind of rights without talking about and standing with the Palestinians, including uh, these children who, for just for picking up plants, are now going to face police action and questioning uh, week after week. It's it's a it's a it's stunning, and I think uh, coverage of this is so important. I mean, these are after all children, the children of of Palestine, children of Colombia, um, again the children who've had no school for a long period. There's some things that happen to language, you know, this idea of of, um, of war machines, the term used in, in Colombia, or this idea that, you know, these children in Palestine are, are terrorists or whatever. Uh, language plays a big role. You know, we, we forget that the government of Honduras, for instance, is effectively a coup government. Uh, so is the government in Thailand. And of course, so is the government in Myanmar, in, in what used to be Burma. Um, I'd done a story for Globetrotter on Burma, but recently UN Women has been speaking out about uh, sexual uh, harassment of women arrested by the military, uh, people protesting on the street. A very large number of women picked up because a large number of women have been protesting. We need to keep an eye on Burma as we need to keep an eye on Honduras and Thailand. I mean, I think uh, missing out on, on what's going on in these countries uh, is, is, is something we shouldn't do. Uh, so we'll come back to Myanmar on another day. Um, we just went through International Working Women's Day on the 8th of March. Uh, today is the 12th of March, so happy International Working Women's Day. Uh, but it's not over yet. I'm, I'm told on March 13th, that's uh, on Saturday, Zoe, there'll be a festival. Uh, in a few quick seconds, can you please tell us, orient us to that festival? Yes. Um, the International Week of Anti-Imperial Struggle, which is a platform of social movements, organizations from across the globe, of networks who are all united in the struggle against imperialism, have come together and are putting on a really special festival, which will uh, feature culture, music, uh, you know, a couple of statements and messages of solidarity uh, in honor to, to honor this women's struggle that has been so crucial over the last year. We know women, you know, are some of the, the majority of the frontline workers, the essential workers, uh, but continue to, you know, engage in deep and necessary struggles for their rights and for equality. So definitely tune into the festival tomorrow. It's going to be streaming on YouTube and on Facebook at the Inter International Week of Anti-Imperial Struggle, also on Alba Movements. So you don't want to miss it. Be there. 9 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Brazil, and as such, it follows. So please tune in and do not, you won't want to miss it. You won't want to miss that festival, just as you don't want to miss Give the People What They Want every Friday. Uh, coming to you from Zoe and Prashant from People's Dispatch. Uh, go along and bookmark peoplesdispatch.org. Um, you'll get some of the best movement storytelling and you'll learn about Colombia, Israel and Palestine. You'll learn about um, the quest for young South Africans to have an education, uh, give the people what they want, comes to you from People's Dispatch, also Globetrotter. 
Uh, I'm Vijay. Happy to be with you this Friday as we are on every Friday. Um, I suppose we'll see you next week if you tell us that you still want us. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us you want us. It'll help us get motivated to come back week after week uh, to give you uh, a snapshot into the world. Uh, are we okay, Zoe, Prashant? We're, We're okay? Great. Okay, Thanks see you next week. Farewell. Bye-bye. Bye. Over.